Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 17th delivery of Terrograms. In this dispatch, we are in the Materials Lab at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and are joined by its founder and current manager, Liat Margulis. Liat is trained as an industrial designer as well as a landscape architect. With Alexander Robinson, she co-authored the book Living Systems, Innovative Materials and Technologies for Landscape Architecture, a highly recommended and wonderful book about new materials and their application in the landscape. She received a BFA in Industrial Design from the Rhode Island Graduate School of Design and a Master's of Landscape Architecture from the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Between degrees, she was the Materials Director for Material Connection, a materials research and consulting company in New York City. She recently worked at the landscape architecture firm Hargraves Associates and is currently a special lecturer at the University of Toronto. We are pleased to welcome Liet Margulis. So let's jump right in and talk about your book, Living, Living Systems. And you have created this lexicon of uh, uh, themes which your systems fall underneath. Could you give us a general overview of the organizational strategy you took for the book? Well, let me begin by saying that um, the charge uh, was to come up with a, a, a materials book for landscape architecture addressing contemporary materials. And I've done a lot of publications um, and compilations of materials in the past, and looking at, at a lot of material books out there, a lot of them tend to have these categorizations that um, are related to the field that they're in, whether they're product design or architecture, and those are uh, essentially related to the properties um, that, the, that the field is trying to um, deal with. For instance, uh, in um, product design, a lot of it has to do with manufacturing and consumer uh, use of the product. In architecture, we have to deal with insulation, um, we have to deal with weathering, we had to deal with compression, with uh, load of snow loads, and, and so on. And so it occurred to me after uh, going through um, the program at the GSD that a lot of the contemporary discussion in landscape architecture has to do with the processes and performances of landscape as a dynamic medium, as a living medium. It has uh, daily, seasonal, uh, and yearly changes that occur, um, whether those are uh, flow of water or wind or growth and decay of, of uh, a plant matter, as well as everything from microbiotic uh, action that we've been introduced to with bioremediation and so on. And so um, it seemed like it, it would make sense to start thinking about a different categorization of materiality that surpassed the architectural designation, the conventional CSI system, the, the specification systems that architecture uses that gave you predetermined applications those were more product-oriented, flooring, paving, erosion control. Um, so we thought about reclassifying materials according to what do they do? What are you trying to do on the site with growth and flow and movement and anything that is of a dynamic nature within the outdoor environment? Uh, and to rethink uh, materiality in that sense, as it is 
uh, quite unique to landscape architecture. So let's jump into grooming. <laughs> yeah, what is it about one. grooming that um, gives us tree crutches, head trimming armature, <laughs> and saltwater herbicide systems? Yeah, well, um, so another sort of thought about the, the classification, the categories themselves, had to do with analogies to the human body, let's say, or any sort of living um, system. Um, so, you know, much like we have a digestive system, um, grooming referred to this, uh, to the topic of maintenance that maybe is, is, a, is, a, uh, is a topic that is not really addressed as a design opportunity within academia or profession. It's sort of a last afterthought. Uh, it's usually a point of contention or a problem. And so rather, uh, rather than thinking about it in a conventional way, maintenance as a chore, we thought of uh, grooming as in how do we take care of ourselves in terms of, like, say, taking a haircut or getting a haircut or, um, or any, any sort of uh, habit that becomes a ritualistic uh, part of our entire identity and our look or our lifestyle that becomes part of the design process. So some of the projects have to do with a sort of a self-maintenance that is integrated into the project itself, meaning that if you know that you're going to deal with a lot of invasives or weeding or anything of that sort, how do you design a landscape that could uh, prevent from overgrowing of, uh, over, overgrowth of, of weeds or or anything of that sort. So this is sort of everything from manipulation a la plastic surgery uh, and, and mm -hmm. all the topics that you can run with conceptually on that level of plastic surgery to the landscape all the way to thinking about how do we take care of ourselves? How do you get a, a haircut that looks good over time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one of the preemptive strategies would be the stunted growth pattern from Vark Landscape Architects and Herzog and Demuron. Can you talk about their stunted growth uh, pattern? They basically, uh, in this landscape, they tried to, to um, refer to uh, the railroad that was there before and the volunteer species that, um, that embed themselves in the ballast, in the, in the gravel, uh, in, the, in the railroad. But this was an interior condition, so it's sort of a, an artificial condition that is emulating the natural growth pattern on railroad tracks with volunteer vegetation. And what they wanted to do is essentially by planting the same trees in a, in a really dense condition. I mean, this is uh, their space about one inch or two inches apart. Uh, those trees are actually miniaturized and create mm -hmm. this um, this miniaturized landscape of the railroad in inside of the building. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just rethinking, basically saying if you rethink the spacing of, I mean it's a very simple concept, but rethinking the spacing of uh, of planting might produce stunted growth and a, a smaller miniature version of that tree. So within the book, you have strategies that are both material-based, based on new technologies, new materials, or old materials, but also process-based. Was it 
harder to come up with this body of more process-based work? No, um, I think that, and, and we could have included um, probably a, a, a doubling of, of the number of projects that we included here. Um, we were limited by page numbers, really. <laughs> um, but I think that mainly what we did is relook at some projects that may have been even presented in other books, but under a different lens. So I think that you could probably approach most projects and look at them from that perspective. So it's a sort of conceptual framework that we're uh, putting out there in saying, redefine um, your project according to these processes and you have a different way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. And do you think this is, this is typical of the contemporary practice of architecture, landscape architecture? Or are there, in fact, some examples that stretch back a couple of decades in time or within the last century? I would tend to think that, that this is representative of uh, contemporary thought in both landscape and architectural fields, where I think people are seeking um, multifunctionality, an added performance, to, to certain elements so that there is a certain efficiency, a certain hybridization of both functionality and poetry that things um, are starting to, I mean, there's certainly with environmental criteria, those become uh, almost the norm nowadays in approaching things not only as spatial, design but also it has this added performance to it so i think that this was sort of in, in our minds um also saying this is what's happening in the field we're not making this up this is something that has come out of our academic studies and from what we are observing is happening out there and we felt that this was um the right time to sort of publish it and say this is the the way of, of thought uh, nowadays. Mm -hmm. After looking at all these projects and then looking back at them, do you see a, a trend towards these being generative in the process of creation within these projects or being more of an application of material or technology? So are, are they are they really fueling the, the broader design of the project, or are they merely solving some problems within the greater design? I, I think it's, a, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it, it goes back and forth. I mean, I think that, that anybody within a design process, since the, it's such a complex and the duration of a project, sometimes it's years, you go back and forth and zoom in and out of topics and um, priorities. I would say that in some projects, my observation is that people come in with a sort of manifesto like Julie Bargman of zero waste. And if that is the approach of a project, then, then you're going to enter a site thinking everything that is on the site is going to be digested into mm -hmm. my 
my landscape mm -hmm. and nothing leaves the site. Mm -hmm. Now that's a pretty strong manifesto. I don't think that all projects begin with something like that, but maybe are sort of um, in a back and forth a development between the various expertise that are on the, on, on the team, running into a problem, you bring in an expert that says, have you thought about this solution? The design mm -hmm. changes, and so I think I think it's a it's hard to draw the line and say it's it's this or that. Are there any other other projects that you can cite as being generated from a, a living system manifesto, um, like the work of Bargman and the Dirt Studio? Yeah, I mean, I th I think for instance. In, in some of the volatile, in the, in the volatile chapter, uh, a lot of the projects began with, with this idea of ephemerality, of thinking about weather as a materiality. So right there and then, it sort of breaks away the convention of thinking of material as, as, as something that is a component, as a solid, but something that is a more intangible system that enters and, and rules your site. Like, for instance, uh, the, the uh, Pitter Patterns, uh, which is a, actually an architectural uh, building, the facade there was thought of as a, its own weather system. So it's a cantilevered roof off of a building that's embedded with about 200 spray nozzles and that is connected to a digital computer system that in, uh, uh, basically sends signals of uh, digital patterns and then it's, it generates a rain facade to the building. And so the entire thought was how do we, we always think in architecture, how do we insulate uh, from rain, from weather. Uh, in this case it's sort of saying the premise is reversed mm -hmm. here, weather becomes an entire experience of the threshold of the building. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I could probably uh, tell a similar story for a lot of them. <laughs> we could go project by project. Yeah. Uh, how did you become interested in materials? That's a good question. Um, well, it all started actually um, in my, with my undergrad education in industrial design uh, at RISD. And, Industrial design is a very materially oriented field because uh, a lot of what you're looking at are um, materials and processes that inform your design. The, the famous uh, form follows function mm -hmm. and, and all those kinds of um, models that were part of our uh, studies. And at RISD in particular, a lot of it was about building your own prototypes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our classes uh, included trips to uh, light bulb manufacturers <laughs> <laughs> and uh, looking at how fluorescent tubes are actually manufactured by, by pulling the glass over 50 feet. It's astonishing. Or looking at how plugs are made with insert molding of metal and plastic. And so when you start looking at these kinds of processes and the, the materials, um, you 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 build this kind of body of knowledge in your in your mind that informs then the, the ideas of, of design, and then uh, after that I 
that was sort of the one of the best things that I would say ever happened to me, which was running into George Bolarian, uh, who was the president and founder of Material Connection in New York. And um, I was lucky enough to join him in the beginning of Material Connection and worked with him for six years to really rethink uh, materials in a way that has never been presented before. I noticed you have consulted through your work at Material Connection, have consulted, have consulted with Diller and Scafidio. Uh, was this the cloud? It was actually, no, it was the ICA. Ah, the ICA. Yeah, this was actually, I mean, talk about a gener generative idea. They came in with this idea of a fluid surface that started on the inside and continued all the way to the outside surface. Mm -hmm. And so this was looking at what material can function both for interior walls, floors, and then swoop all the way outside and become the decking on the water. So we looked at all, all sorts of uh, different alternatives. And, and how did that finally manifest itself in the project? Um, it's, I would say it's pretty, it's pretty obvious, actually. It's pretty consistent. You can see the, that fluidity between the decking material and the, the inside. So on that level, I think, they did a pretty pretty good job in, in carrying that mm -hmm. idea through. And was the result picking a specific type of semi-exotic or exotic wood? At the time, all, all we did is inundate them with, with <laughs> options. <laughs> it's to say, well, you can look at plastic lumber, or you can mm -hmm. look at wood, or you can look at all the various mm -hmm. options. The, the strategy for the consulting, for the most part, is always to come in in the very beginning of a project and to offer as many ideas and possibilities. And then uh, normally the designers then take off and do their R&D in-house. So was the research that you made there project-specific or did you have a lot of time to do research outside of these, these commissions? It was both. I mean, uh, I was essentially traveling to aerospace shows uh, in Anaheim, California, <laughs> to look at laser cutting. You know, this is late 90s, so it's still pretty new, at least for industrial design or architecture. Uh, laser cutting of titanium, uh, looking at uh, honeycomb metals, uh, which were then also kind of new to architecture, um, that are now have become sort of panel material that's very popular and I would travel to technical textile shows in Frankfurt and looking at everything from geotextiles to fire resistant textiles for firefighters mm -hmm. and so I did a lot of uh, traveling a lot of um, meeting with material scientists a lot of whom worked within universities and would do a lot of uh, R&D for the military. That, that's where a lot of material mm -hmm. science actually happens. And so we, we basically worked with material scientists. Uh, we had Renee Ford, who is a brilliant woman who was our liaison to that community. Uh, we worked with um, cultural attaches of embassies from different countries saying, okay, Finland, what's going on um, in, in the industry of uh, design or, or material manufacturing? Mm -hmm. and, and 
a lot of countries are then really interested because that that's their their task is to sit in New York and um, become cultural liaisons. So we we leveraged that, and in fact, if you visit the Material Connection website, you could see a lot of exhibitions that then we curated or projects that that evolved from those kinds mm -hmm. of liaisons with either various uh, countries or various uh, uh, companies. So it's very interesting. Has, has material manufacturing evolved radically in the last 10 years? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I, would, I would probably say yes, because um, I mean, the technology is rapidly evolving. Um, there's a lot more demand from, from the designer um, community. So, I, yeah, I would say not knowing how to mm -hmm. really quantify it, but I would imagine. Are there so. any specific components of the technology that are pushing it, such as the laser cutter or the, the marrying of heavy industry with digital technology or military with digital technology? Do you think some of this evolution has, has pushed pushed materials, material technology further? Um, I think um, one thing that has pushed uh, technology knowingly is environmental concerns. I was in a meeting uh, many years ago in, in DC where um, some of the stakeholders were uh, some of the biggest specifiers of materials in the country. Now, the biggest specifier of materials is the military. Mm -hmm. Then um, things like transportation, road construction, uh, and so on and so forth. And basically, the idea was that if you get regulations uh, in these industries to specify environmental concerns, you then are affecting all manufacturing of materials uh, for architecture as well, for uh, commercial and and so on. So I think that in in that sense, I think there's been a lot of change for material content. So from the world of materials, you decided to move into the landscape and to <laughs> go to graduate school to study landscape architecture. What inspired you to make this make this shift, which is potentially a rather big one in your life? Right. It was mainly looking at um, the life cycle of, uh, of material production uh, from extraction to disposal that uh, perked my interest and concern. Uh, as I was reading uh, constantly about how materials are being made, the impact uh, environmentally, the impact uh, of even indoor air quality uh, is materials off gas or impact on on land and 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 um, social justice uh, topics that started to come about with with disposal of material so all those kinds of uh, concerns were in 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 the forefront of of my work there at the at, at the end I started gearing all my my consulting towards environmental consulting for firms and so on and so forth and um, I ended up here, actually, at the GSD, um, I think it was 2001, maybe, for the Brownfields Great 
conf Greywater conference mm -hmm. and then saw, heard everything from people talking about river restorations to uh, post-industrial sites, uh, the technology associated with them, the politics associated with them, the urbanity and the impact on, on, um, on our, our entire environment. And I thought, wow, this is, <laughs> this is revolutionary. <laughs> this is it for me. That was, that was kind of the, the transition. And I mean, b beforehand, I was also co-teaching at Parsons. Uh, and we, you know, we were looking at green roofs back then uh, and, and uh, thinking about gray water systems within the building and so on and so forth. But I'd never really thought about them as landscape architecture. I still thought about them in the context of, of a building or in the context of, of the industrial design way of, of, of thinking. And so landscape was a completely different uh, and unfamiliar territory. And when I was introduced to it, I thought this is amazing. Would it possibly be the difference between thinking of these materials, thinking of the modes of application of these materials versus thinking of ways these materials can generate bigger bigger changes in, environmentally? Both modes of, of design or, or production have a tremendous impact on on our environment and our on our social life and and so and so on uh, both the production of products and uh, in our living environments. Um, it seemed to me that um, when you're looking at what's happening um, where sea levels are rising and there isn't any planning that is dealing with, with flood control or really rethinking what is going to happen to a majority of, the, of our coasts uh, worldwide, or what is happening to um, a lot of community communities who are affected by pollutions, and can we get into the planning strategies of streetscapes that are actually impacting and remediating or alleviating the pollution into rivers and so on? So, to me, that was a more critical or or place that I wanted to have impact. You are listening to Terragrams, and our guest is Liat Margulis. Liat is trained as an industrial designer and landscape architect and is the co-author of Living Systems, Innovative Materials, and Technologies for Landscape Architecture. Currently, she is a special lecturer at the University of Toronto. And since graduating, you've been working at Hargraves Associates. Does your research play a significant role on your role in that office? I think... Because I have been sort of identified as the the material <laughs> girl, I think I'm the go-to person for a lot of precedent studies and for a lot of sort of suggestions of um, of materials. And I've been really lucky to work with one of our principals, Gavin McMillan, who is absolutely brilliant and he's been he's um, the kind of designer that uh, can 
really think on a large scale, big picture, really the, the vision for an, an entire region within a city, all the way down to the quantification of stormwater collection within a street curb. And he marries the two together, both through design, through uh, politics, through, through dealing with municipalities and, and engineering departments and, and aligning the right people. So working with him, I've been able to, to develop those kinds of investigations of re rethinking, um, this is a project in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, so re rethinking the sort of conventional streetscape approach and to infrastructure in that, in that capacity. So, so teaming up with him has really been, mm -hmm. been I think, taking advantage of, of this interest and... It's been able yeah. to shift scales from the detail to the bigger regional plan. Right, and sort of back and forth. So, so the project began actually with a really, really large scale, three miles mm -hmm. of, of riverfront and 650 acres of, of, a, of a city. Are you still developing the project now? Yes, yes. Which, which components are you working on? Which parts? Well, it's it's been um, a pretty complex. We went from an entire master plan to developing twelve projects at the same time, uh, but also developing at the same time street codes, zoning codes, or, or alternative to zoning codes. Now, essentially, this is sort of, I think, for me at least, has been maybe the most interesting part and the most triumphant part is the, the rethinking of the infrastructure of the, of the street right-of-way by combining together the planting strip, the tree, hmm. the storm drain, the curb and the sidewalk all as one integrated system so mm. that no water leaves the street mm. and goes into the river. So we, I think we've just managed to convince <laughs> the city, which is absolutely astonishing, mm -hmm. solely by, by luck because they're up for renewal of a permit that says that you can't essentially outflow effluent into the, uh, into the river. Mm -hmm. And each year when you, or each, Every time that you have to renew that permit, uh, they ask you if you've done anything to improve in your green streets. <laughs> so uh, we really lucked out. <laughs> um, but maybe when it comes down to it, sustainability is about making the simplest changes in the most banal details. Curb, sidewalk, absolutely. Uh, drain inlet. And those are the, the most difficult because you're talking about a system that's been in place for years and nobody wants to change it because they don't want to be liable for it. It's too much to now train the entire municipal uh, crew mm -hmm. from engineers to maintenance to rethink their um, set of skills. Um, their construction methods, their their the material specifications, mm -hmm. and so the, their immediate uh, response is, uh, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so yes, yeah, it's, it's really uh, 
when you when you look at it, it's it's a really simple shift taking away the curb, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's been a, a tremendous. I mean, it's more than a curb, but it's but it's been you know it's it's a battle. Mm -hmm. And you're also working on the Baton Rouge waterfront. What are you doing here? Baton Rouge, unfortunately, has been on on hold. It was a really incredible master plan looking at a riverfront for Baton Rouge. The entire riverfront right now is actually a levee. Uh, so you can't really access because uh, the levee is higher than, mm. than, the, than um, the city ground. So you really have this barrier uh, in between the city downtown and, um, and the Mississippi River this gigantic river mm -hmm. and absolutely no access to it. So we designed of essentially floating landscapes, enormous parks that were on mm -hmm. barges with bridges leading to them. It was fantastic. Oh. But it's... Yeah, Is it on hold for political or yeah, fiscal mm, reasons? Uh, probably both. Mm -hmm. A combination of, of mm -hmm. a whole host of, of reasons. But, but Hargrave's... Um, yeah, has has also designed the master plan for New Orleans. So I, I you, you never know. I mean, mm -hmm. um, something might happen. Mm -hmm. And in the fall, you're headed to Toronto. That's right. What are you doing in Toronto? <laughs> or what will you be doing in Toronto? I will be uh, teaching full time uh, at the University of Toronto in the landscape department. I uh, had uh, the pleasure of meeting uh, Charles Waldheim earlier this year during a lecture that I gave on on the Living Systems book and uh, he was really excited on having me be part of a team that he's trying to form that is gonna rethink uh, how ecology is being taught in the landscape department uh, and what he wants to do is form a team that is composed of people uh, who are experts in field ecology, i.e., you know, Richard Foreman here at the GSD, uh, people who have real expertise in, in, in ecology as a science, um, all the way down to, to the detail and tectonics uh, and materiality of ecological thinking. And so this is where I come in. You'll be teaching a studio as I'm well as a teaching uh, an option studio mm -hmm. uh, that I have to uh, come up with mm -hmm. uh, for the fall, as well as a research seminar uh, that continues living systems in its next phase. And then second semester, I'll be teaching a core first-year studio uh, looking at the airport in Toronto, which is really interesting, and looking actually at representation mm -hmm techniques, new modes of representation. Will your studio be coupled with your seminar, your material seminar? Will you try That's to find some That's the aim. That's the aim. Um, so the studio right now is a site in Israel, which is where I'm from. I um, also had a chance uh, this past year to connect with the Technion um, University in Haifa and their landscape architecture department and we're gonna try to run the same studio simultaneously and the the topic is is fairly um, interesting or the site it's a it's a river that its origins uh, begin in the West Bank mm -hmm. 
like most east east west rivers that run through israel uh they actually begin in the west bank and then outflow into the mediterranean sea and so the the political the social political context of this is the idea that you have to resolve the infrastructural problems um in, uh, in upstream in order mm. if you want to have anything that you do downstream uh, actually uh, make sense. Mm -hmm. And so I like that context a lot in thinking about design as, um, as a tool to start discussing um, geopolitical boundaries and rivers you know, don't recognize mm -hmm. uh, the, the political these, boundaries, these jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great uh, context to the project. This particular river uh, is one of the most important rivers. Also, it's a, also has historic, I mean, biblical uh, references and so on. Goes through an agricultural, um, one of the biggest agricultural areas in Israel, and then an industrial area, which is the port of Haifa and then outflows. So there is an initiative right now to create a metropolitan park um, in, in that industrial zone where, right where it flows into the Mediterranean Sea, um, which will border the city of Haifa, an Israeli city, and then some of the Arabic cities or villages as well. So we're going to essentially look at a number of different uh, issues there. The regional scale is going to be the context. We're going to focus in on a, on a smaller scale within that metropolitan park, but then also really uh, investigating all the different technologies um, of remediation of uh, everything that we'll have to focus on, on river technologies. And then on top of that, sort of have the, the, the climate aspect, this sort mm -hmm. of semi-arid um, climate, which has been another topic um, I've been starting to look at. So uh, hopefully the, the research seminar will will feed into that. So it, it would be pretty, pretty amazing because we'd have a, a research team essentially mm -hmm. just looking at precedents and technologies. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is to also tap into a lot of the research that is going on in Israel. Mm -hmm and some of the, the science institutes there that are looking at water, looking at, 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 at desert construction, and uh, all, all sorts of different uh, ideas. And then the other team um, in the studio, maybe some of the students will overlap, hopefully, will actually try to implement mm -hmm. those, um, those studies in the, on the site. That'll be an interesting marriage. We'll see. We'll hopefully it'll work out. And this, this leads you to perhaps the next iteration of living systems. I would hope so, yeah. I mean, I think, I think having, having this sort of academic context, amazing people up in Toronto, I think would give me um, the time and the, um, the body of work to actually take this to the next, um, to the next volume. While we're here in the materials collection, let's talk a little bit about the collection here. You were asked to organize the materials collection, sort of give birth to it, so to speak. How did you begin? Well, I was um, essentially I started interviewing uh, faculty from the architecture department and the landscape department, various um, uh, studio instructors, technology instructors, 
with different agenda and different uh, ways of looking at materials and design and started to ask them what would they like to see? How would they like to um, see the physical collection? How they would like to see the uh, digital collection and the terminology and the systems of, uh, of the, the search engine itself? And then um, from that, uh, basically started working with the IT uh, system here, uh, the director of Loeb Library, we sort of went back and forth between thinking about the categorization of mm -hmm. materials and the programming of the database. And basically beyond that, it was uh, a lot of trial and error of building the database, uh, accruing materials, and working with an incredible research team of uh, students who are contributing to um, the content. premise of the materials collection was not only to offer an archive of materials for students and faculty, but to also be considered a teaching tool uh, for the a pedagogy of, of classrooms. And, and to really have faculty and, and students think about this as a, as a lab and as an opportunity for them to launch um, investigations about materials. So all of the researchers that have uh, gone through uh, through this place uh, as work-study students, well, I, I should say majority of them, uh, have also been basically uh, looking at very specific uh, topics that are then feeding back into their uh, either independent studies or thesis projects. So we have one installation up on the terraces, uh, the fifth floor, which is a green wall, looking at a soilless uh, planting system where uh, this was uh, Beatrice Saraga, she was a, a landscape student here, um, looking at, and, and actually in collaboration with Willine Cow, uh, both of them looked at uh, various aggregates and their water retention capacity, um, and looking at, at this, um, this vertical installation as an experiment. Um, and so we're, we have a lot of these kinds of, um, there's another one in, in, in process that's about acoustics, mm -hmm. Uh, thinking about installations all around the GSD that have to do with acoustical experiences. So that's been one aspect of things. The, the other is um, the influence on, on actual class curriculum and the generation of uh, new classes, um, such as with uh, Laura Solano's class uh, of Emerging Technologies in Landscape Architecture this semester. Um, and then the third aspect is is the blog, which we started mm -hmm. uh, this year, um, which uh, I think is one of the most exciting projects. And what it's doing is that it's now zooming out into looking at what looking at the materials that we have here, samples, and then looking at what projects they've been used in, and actually creating a database online that's. Uh, of projects, but you can search them by material. Is this, can anyone access this? That's, uh, yeah, anybody can access that. Um, unlike the, uh, the GSD materials um, website, which is now, it's currently just Harvard University. Um, we're trying to open that up to alumni. Um, and how many materials or project examples do you have on your blog? Um, it's probably just 
uh, over a dozen mm -hmm. uh, materials, more projects related to them. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there are uh, two or three projects associated with with one. We so it's just in the sort of preliminary stages of the of the site, but the idea is that the next phase is to have a submission page so then we can advertise mm -hmm. it for people to actually submit projects um, into it. And when you go to Toronto, will you leave the collection behind? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's my baby. <laughs> um, a lot of the, the digital work is done online anyway. We've designed sort of a front end and a back end that I can access remotely. And then uh, the research team here uh, is in charge of the open hours and the actual processing of, of material samples. And uh, I'll be down here probably uh, uh, on a monthly basis meeting with everybody. Keeping all the boxes in place. That's right. <laughs> okay. Keeping them check. <laughs> Talk to us about your favorite material just before we, we close. <laughs> oh, that's so hard. Um, well, there's this big. I'm I'm looking at this this uh, what we call our fur ball. It's a it's actually a, an erosion control log <laughs> made out of uh, coconut fibers that are um, matted together into this pill shaped um, maybe a foot long thing furry thing. Does it come um, in and so lengths? it comes in different configurations, different lengths, and basically, uh, the, and, and also mats. And the way you apply it is uh, you stake it into um, the ground. And so you may have different configurations. This one is actually used uh, as check dams uh, within rivers to actually attenuate the flow and velocity of water in a stream. Uh, maybe then accrue all sorts of uh, biomatter, uh, develop a habitat of fish, and, and so on. So you might need to do that where a stream has been um, devoid of, of its um, mm -hmm. large woody debris. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's one aspect of it. The other is that because it's coconut fiber, it's actually biodegradable. Mm -hmm. So it's designed to um, be installed um, when you have no plant matter as a, as a way to stop erosion. And then once plant matter starts um, uh, seeding in there and actually uh, pl uh, planting its roots in, in the soil and providing erosion control that way, the uh, coconut fiber de degrades <laughs> naturally. And have you seen this used in any contemporary public spaces? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. I think West Haight may have used it <laughs> in their public space project in Yverdon for the Swiss Expo Zero. Oh, two. okay. And they used it to define the edge of their big plant mounds, which framed up the foreground to Dylan Scafidio's uh, cloud, cloud uh, in the background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Coco Jute log. Yeah, the Coco Jute. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thanks. Um, good luck next year in Toronto and with the evolution of the materials lab. We'll post the blog site uh, in our show notes. Wonderful. Um, as well as the, the link to the, the book. We look forward to the new living, the second iteration of the, the Living Systems book. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Greg. 
Liat Margulis is trained as an industrial designer and landscape architect and is the co-author of Living Systems, Innovative Materials and Technologies for Landscape Architecture. Thank you for joining us for the 17th Dispatch of Tyrograms. Join us next time for a conversation with Michael van Gesel, landscape architect based in the Netherlands and finalist of the 5th Biennale of Landscape in Barcelona. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their great music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. Thank you for joining us. This concludes the 17th delivery of Terragrams. Lemon of Pink.